In around uh, 587 BC, uh, the nation of Judah was conquered uh, by the mighty Babylonian Empire. Uh, they destroyed Jerusalem uh, and the uh, glorious temple that stood there. Uh, and they carried away the best of the people and the wealth that was contained within the temple as well. And uh, what they left behind was uh, just a little remnant of people who had to piece their lives together as best they could. Uh, weak, defenseless, leaderless. Uh, eventually, the Babylonian Empire was toppled by the Medes and the Persians. And the Persian king Cyrus uh, made a decree that the Jews could return to their homeland. Uh, and the exiles returned and a reconstruction started on the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, as I shared last week, the work stalled. Uh, the surrounding nations uh, did not like the Jews back in the land. Fancy that. Couldn't imagine that, could we? Uh, but these nations surrounded and hindered the work of the Jews as they try to rebuild the temple. Uh, and over the next 17 years, very little happened until God sent two prophets, uh, Haggai and Zechariah, you know, the same Zechariah who we have read from this evening. And they stirred up the people, and they stirred up Zerubbabel, who was the governor of the people of Judah, and Joshua, who was the high priest. And he stirred them up to work, to continue to work on the temple. And eventually the temple was rebuilt, uh, but to a much smaller scale. And we're even told actually in the book of Ezra that when they built the temple, there was a big celebration. And the young people celebrated and rejoiced, but the older generation wept because they saw the temple they had built, and it was nothing in comparison to the great temple that had been destroyed. And they described the times in which they were living as the day of small things. <laughs> Everything seemed so pitiful. Everything seemed so much more pathetic and feeble than what it had been uh, about 70 years before. And it was around this time, as I said, that Zechariah, the prophet, is speaking to the people, stirring them up, encouraging them to continue in the work of building the temple. And it's in this uh, situation that Zechariah sees this vision. God gives him this very strange to our ears vision. Now let me read it again. Uh, verse 1 of chapter 4 of Zechariah says, Now the angel who talked with me came back and wakened me, as a man who is wakened out of sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? So I said, I am looking, and there is a lampstand of solid gold with a bowl on top of it, and on the, seven, on the stand seven lamps with seven pipes to the seven lamps. Two olive trees are by it, one at the right of the bowl and the other at its left. Uh, Zechariah says that he can see a lampstand with seven lamps. And either side of the lampstand, there are two 
olive trees. And there's a bowl above the lampstand. And the branches of the olive trees are feeding oil into the bowl. And there are pipes from the bowl into the lamps, the seven lamps of the lampstands. And if you're thinking, what on earth does that mean? Well, you're in good company. Because Zechariah thought exactly the same thing. Look at verse 4. It says, So I answered and spoke to the angel who talked with me, saying, What are these, my lords? Zechariah is as baffled as you or I am as we see this very strange vision of a lampstand with two olive trees feeding it from either side. And you might be a bit irritated uh, by the angel's answer. Look at verse 5. Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And if I was Zechariah, I'd be tempted to reply, Well, that's why I asked. <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> I wouldn't have asked the question if I knew. But the point is, the angel seems surprised that Zechariah doesn't know what this means. The angel believes that Zechariah should understand the vision. In a way, the angel's response is similar to Jesus' response to Nicodemus. Do you remember? When Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. And Nicodemus is baffled. And he says, what does that mean? How can you climb back into your mother's womb and be born again? And Jesus says to him, you're the teacher in Israel. Uh, You're one of the religious leaders, and yet you don't understand these things. Because Zechariah was a member of a priestly family. And he should have been familiar with the temple and the items that were in the temple. Yes, at this point it wasn't yet standing. Nevertheless, as a priest, he should have known and been familiar with what God had commanded to be put in the temple. And we need to understand that in order to understand this vision that Zechariah is given. Because you might well know uh, that the temple in Jerusalem had two main rooms. There were other rooms as well, storerooms and other things. But there were two main uh, rooms in the temple. There was the holy place and the holy of holies. And in the first room the holy place, there were three pieces of furniture. Uh, There was an altar of incense. There was a table of showbread, a table with bread on it. There was also a large lampstand, which was called the menorah. Uh, You've no doubt probably seen pictures of it. In fact, it is the emblem of Israel to this day, the menorah, the seven-headed candlestick. Uh, It was to be beaten out of one piece of gold. Three branches on one side, three branches on the other, with one main central one in the middle. And on top of each of these branches, there was a lamp. So there were seven lamps in total. And uh, these lamps didn't have candles like we know them. Uh, They were a wick which was put into oil. And it was the priest's job to make sure that the lamps were always replenished with oil because the oil would uh, uh, soak into the wick and enable a light to always be burning. And the priests were told there must be a light burning 
day and night. And that was the purpose of this lampstand in the holy place, to give light both day and night. You might wonder what was the significance of this lampstand in the tabernacle. And there were multiple layers and different answers we might give, but one legitimate answer is the lampstand in the tabernacle represented God's people. Uh, Most specifically, it represented the nation of Israel herself. Uh, God said to Israel that they were to be a light to the nations. Uh, Israel, God's people, is to be a lampstand to the world. People are to look at God's people and see something of what God is like himself. If you go to the end of the Bible, to the book of Revelation, you see the same image being used of the church. Uh, Do you remember how Christ in chapters 1 to 3 is walking amongst the lampstands and the lamps are different churches, seven churches and those seven churches are to be a light to the world as the church is to be a light to the world as we here are to be a light to the surrounding uh, neighborhood that we are in. That's what the lampstand signified. And Christ, of course, is our great high priest. Just as that high priest had to make sure the lamp was always replenished with oil, so Christ makes sure that we are always replenished with oil as he gives us his Holy Spirit to accomplish the tasks that he has given to us. It's interesting, I don't know if you noticed, it's a little almost throwaway comment that the angel makes a little bit later. Uh, But he says in verse uh, 10, uh, the angel says to uh, Zechariah, who has despised the day of small things? For these seven rejoice to see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. They are the eyes of the Lord, which scan to and fro throughout the whole earth. Uh, Zechariah is told by this angel, presumably referring back to these seven lamps on this lampstand, he says, these lamps are the eyes of the Lord, which are throughout the whole world. That's quite a solemn thought when you ponder what that means. What God is saying to us is that we, as God's people, if we're a believer here this evening, we are the eyes of God in the world. Because light, of course, isn't just about being seen, it's about being able to see. Uh, The book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians says, we are the body of Christ. And so there is a sense in which we can say Nothing happens in this world except through God's people. We are the eyes of God. We are the feet of God. We are the hands of God in this world. Do you appreciate what a solemn thought that is? Uh, Have you ever been tempted to ask the question, Why doesn't God do such and such? 
Why doesn't he solve this problem over here? Or why doesn't he solve that problem over there? When perhaps the question we should be asking is what does God want us to do to help those situations? Because we are the body of Christ in this world. Uh, it reminds me, just give one illustration from scripture. Uh, do you remember Cornelius, who was a Gentile centurion? And he sees an angel. And uh, the angel tells him to send for Peter so that Peter can tell him the gospel. And I've always read that and thought, well, why didn't the angel share the message with Peter, uh, with um, Cornelius? Surely the angel knew the gospel. Surely the angel could cut out the middleman. And just tell Cornelius himself. But he doesn't. He says, go and send for Peter. Why? Because God's people are his hands and his feet in this world. So before you wonder, why is God not doing this, that or the other? Ask yourself, what are you doing through God's strength, through God's power, through God's Holy Spirit that he gives to us, what are you doing to help that situation? Uh, perhaps you ask the question, why doesn't God remove so-and-so's anxiety? Well, maybe God wants you to be the instrument in that person's anxiety. Perhaps he wants you to give a word of encouragement, uh, a word of love, a word of affection. Perhaps that is how God wants to solve that problem. Perhaps you say, why doesn't God save so-and-so? Well, perhaps God wants to use you as the means. Perhaps he wants you to share with that person the wonderful good news of the gospel. Do you see we are the hands and the feet and the eyes of Christ in this world. That's what is meant by the lamps on this lampstand. But there's still some things which haven't been explained yet. Because we have these two olive trees either side of the lampstand. Um, and Zechariah is puzzled about what they mean too. Look at verse 11. Uh, Zechariah says, then I answered and said to him, what are these two olive trees at the right of the landstand and at the left? And the angel explains what they are. He says in verse 14, these are the two anointed ones who stand beside the Lord of the whole earth. Now, as is often the case with of scripture there's a lot of debate about exactly what this means but uh, the majority of commentators agree that's what's being referred to here or who is being referred to here are Zerubbabel the governor of Judah and Joshua the high priest of Judah uh, king or ruler and priest were two anointed roles in Israel and in Judah at this time. Uh, kings and priests were to be anointed with oil. 
And when God is speaking of these two anointed ones, he's speaking of these two individuals who he has anointed to lead Israel, to lead Judah at this time. Zerubbabel and Joshua. And the oil, of course, represents God's Holy Spirit. Uh, Just do a little word study in the Bible and you'll see how oil is often linked with the Holy Spirit, which God gives. Uh, God's strength that he provides for us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Just like a lamp or the oil lamps of years gone by couldn't give off light without oil. So we have no power without the Holy Spirit that God gives to us. And that is the central message of this vision. This is the reason why Zechariah has been given this vision. Look again at verse 6. This is the central part of the vision where the angel gives what it's all about. Verse 6 says, So he answered and said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace, grace to it. Uh, That verse there, verse 6, is one of the more famous verses of Zechariah. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. God is teaching Zechariah. And he's teaching Judah that what matters isn't how big the nation of Judah is. It doesn't matter how powerful she is. It does not matter how clever she is. It does not matter how impressive she looks. It doesn't matter how many people make up the population of Judah. It doesn't matter how impressive their ruler or lack of ruler is. What matters is that they are filled with the Holy Spirit. And God says to Zechariah through this vision, these two olive trees, Zerubbabel and Joshua, they are appointed by me. I have anointed them. They have my Holy Spirit. And that is all that is needed. Look again. At verse 8, it says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands shall also finish it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For who has despised the day of small things? For these seven rejoice to see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. They are the eyes of the Lord which scan to and fro throughout the whole earth. God's saying, don't be depressed by how small things seem. Don't be discouraged by how weak you look. That is irrelevant because Zerubbabel has my spirit. He's laid the foundation and he will lay the capstone as well. He started the work and he will finish with the power that I give to him. That is always where God's people get their strength. It's not from our cleverness. Uh, It's not from our political power. 
It's not from our uh, slick eloquence. It's not from all these things that the world looks at. Our power comes from the Holy Spirit. Do you remember when the Israelites uh, were told to go into the promised land? And initially, they didn't want to. They said, oh, the giants, they're big, they're scary, we can't go in. The, the walls are thick, uh, we'll get squashed like bugs if we go into the land. And God says, because you haven't trusted me, you'll have to wander around the wilderness for 40 years. Uh, the children of Israel didn't like that, so they said, okay, no, this time we will go in. Uh, they changed their mind and said, we don't want to wander around, so we will go in. But Moses says to them, don't try it, because God is not with you. Nothing had changed in their number. They had exactly the same force of arms. They had exactly the same number in their army. Nothing had physically changed, humanly speaking. The only difference was God would no longer be with them. And they were catastrophically defeated when they tried to enter the land in their own strength. Do you remember Samson? Uh, Samson, the strong man who was... Uh, his strength was symbolized by his long hair. Uh, but when that vow was broken and his hair was cut, the spirit, we're told, departed from him. And he was as weak as any other man. Uh, he had the same muscles. His body was identical to the body he had before. But he had lost the Holy Spirit. The lesson all the way through is that it's not by might nor by human power but by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Zerubbabel, at this time, wasn't an impressive ruler. He was a son of David, because God promised that it would be the sons of David who would sit on his throne. But he certainly wasn't an impressive king like they had in the past. He didn't have a throne. He didn't have a palace. Uh, he didn't have a crown. None of these things which normally came with the... Uh, honor of being king, Zerubbabel didn't have. Uh, people would look at him and think, well, he's not up to much. He's just a governor. He's just a governor for the Persian Empire. But God says that does not matter. What matters is that he has my Holy Spirit. And he says, you watch. You will see that Zerubbabel will accomplish what I have for him. Can you see the relevance of this message for us today? Uh, the church doesn't look particularly impressive, does it? I don't just speak about ours, but I speak of the church generally. Uh, the church is relatively small. There are more people who are secular than people who go to church or who uh, take the Bible seriously or who claim to follow Christ. Uh, we're ridiculed in many ways on films and on TV uh, and in our workplaces even or at school. Uh, we are not impressive of ourselves, But that does not matter. What matters is if we have God's Holy Spirit. The tragedy is so many Christians even uh, are more interested in entertainment or in recreation or in all the things that the world is interested in that they don't cultivate 
a relationship with God. Uh, Jesus himself said, didn't, didn't he, that as a father gives good gifts to his children, so the father wants to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. But so many of us have our hands full of other things and we don't approach God for that greatest of gifts, to be filled with his Holy Spirit. And can we wonder why we are weak? Uh, why we do not accomplish much in this world if we seek other things over God's greatest and most precious gift, the Holy Spirit himself. Uh, give me an old man filled with the Holy Spirit rather than a hundred young men who don't have or who aren't filled with the Holy Spirit. But by the same token, give me one young man filled with the Holy Spirit, rather than a hundred old men who lack him. That is what matters. Are we filled with God's Spirit? Is God working in our life? Everything else is inconsequential in comparison. That's why God can say, don't despise the day of small things because God delights to use small and insignificant things. God delights to take weak, foolish people, fill them with his Holy Spirit and accomplish great and wonderful things. Our smallness and our weakness doesn't disqualify us, as we said this morning, it qualifies us because we are vessels that God can use. Now, the famous preacher and author, Dr. F.B. Mayer, uh, once said this. Uh, he said, don't waste your time waiting and longing for large opportunities which may never come, but faithfully handle the little things that are always claiming your attention. There's a lot of wisdom in that short sentence. Don't waste your time dreaming and longing for large, spectacular things. God doesn't genuinely work in those ways. God's voice is heard in the still, small voice. In the small, seemingly insignificant things that are called upon us every day uh, to visit the person who is sick, uh, to give a phone call to the person who needs it, to faithfully do our daily work day after day. It's not impressive. Uh, it doesn't look uh, impressive in the eyes of the world, but it's in these small things that God accomplishes his purposes in this world. That's why we mustn't despise the day of small things. And that, of course, is what Christmas is all about, or what it should be. Uh, those olive trees in this vision were pictures of Zerubbabel, the ruler, the king, as it were, and Joshua, the high priest. But you realize that Zerubbabel and Joshua were themselves picture, pictures of an even higher reality, 
there were three anointed offices in Israel. One was the king, one was a priest, and the other was a prophet. Those were the three anointed offices in Israel. Some kings were prophets, but they were never priests. Uh, Some priests were prophets, but they were never kings. Only one person in all human history has fulfilled all three offices. Jesus himself was prophet, priest, and king. And as we go through Zechariah, we'll see how that's the case, even written in this book itself. Uh, Jesus is the word of God. He's the one who explains to us most clearly who God is. Uh, He's our great high priest, as we said at the beginning, and he's the king of kings and lord of lords. He's the one who gives us his Holy Spirit. He's the one who feeds us and gives us the power that we need. And yet, how did he come into this world? He came as a baby in a manger. That's ridiculous to this world. That's not how kings are born. They're born in palaces, not in mangers. But that's how God came into this world. What could be smaller? What could be less impressive? Uh, He grew up in the despised city of Nazareth. You remember what Nathaniel said in John's Gospel, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And yet that's where God chose for Jesus to live. Uh, Most of Jesus' ministry wasn't in Jerusalem, wasn't in the great capital city, it was in the towns and villages in Galilee. This is not what the world would do, but it's what God did. And Jesus won his greatest victory through suffering and death on a cross. That's why we mustn't despise the day of small things, because it's precisely through those small things that God works. God worked his greatest victory through the smallest and foolish and most foolish of things. So I don't know what you made of this vision when we first read it, but I trust you now see the encouragement of it. It does not matter how small we are. It doesn't matter how weak we feel. It doesn't matter how insignificant we think we are in this world. It is precisely through such things that that God works. So let's seek his Holy Spirit. Don't waste your time with the passing feeble things of this world. Seek God and see what he will do through you. That's why I've chosen as our final hymn, number 100 and 62 him which draws our attention again back uh, to that Jesus in the manger and how he conquered the world through suffering and death it's number 162 as with gladness men of old did the guiding star behold as with joy they held its light leading onward beaming bright so most gracious lord may we evermore be led to thee so let's close by singing number 162